From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. So we are in Genesis, and thank you for joining me because we are in Genesis this morning. Uh, we've kind of seen uh, the creation story from Genesis 1, then we saw the creation story of Genesis 2. Uh, but I just want to go back and just talk a little bit about um, uh, Genesis 2 and uh, where we're going to go this morning. Because, uh, let's see, yeah. So, we're actually going to start in Genesis 2, verse 18. Uh, we kind of looked at the creation story of Genesis 1, creation story of Genesis 2. Now I want to really talk about uh, man and wife, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, the first created uh, humans. So let's just go to Genesis uh, verse 18 and read. We've read this before, but I want to read it again. So the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then he took then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So, um... Man, just uh, a couple things here. First of all, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, my grandmother, used to tell a story about Adam and Eve. Uh, from this, that every day Adam would go and work in the garden, and every day when Adam came home from the garden, uh, Eve would count his ribs. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of funny, right? Because uh, you know, she wants to make sure that there's no other Eves running around. Um, but uh, it really is a great um, story about how God created man and wife. Uh, in, in many, many, many parts of nature, uh, you can actually uh, procreate, you can actually grow uh, without having a man and wife. There are some uh, there are some creatures or, you know, viruses or whatever there are in nature. There are um, uh, things, I guess you could say, living organisms that can actually replicate without having uh, the species divided. But for humans and most of the animals, actually all the animals, right? Uh, there's this there's this man and wife. There's this uh, male and female component to the species. It's come together and they replicate. And uh, this, I think, biologically, this makes sense because what it provides is genetic diversity, and genetic diversity provides for protection against disease. If you have the same plant or same animal 
that is identical from place to place to place or you know from generation to generation there's no genetic diversity uh, and so there's no way to you know breed in or breed out good things or bad things or whatever um, so there is some biological reason I think why it's good to have genetic diversity uh, and of course we like genetic diversity because then we are genetically unique right we have one set of genes from our father one set of genes from our mother uh, and those are kind of randomly chosen out of each pair uh, they come together and we get a unique person a unique individual uh, and each one of us is unique genetically um, there's no two ones of us alike because there are so many different gen genomes that uh, the only way that we get anybody that's alike from us is if we have identical twins and even if we have identical twins uh, because of epigenetics, which is the stuff that's placed on the genome, none of us are truly 100% identical, even from an identical twin. Uh, so those are you know, interesting things about it. But that's not why God created man and wife, right? If you go back to, uh, to look, uh, it says that um, man gave name to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So it wasn't necessarily that uh, the genetic part of the creation is why God split us into man and woman. Uh, it sounds like from Genesis that the reason why God created us as man and woman, that he took woman out of man, was that it was a suitable, a suitable helper. That word helper is etzer, and it really means helper, that it's a companion. Uh, it's a completion. You see, uh, I believe, and this is, I, I think, you know, not going too far out of Scripture, that God exists in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in relationship. We are created as relational creatures. And as relational creatures, we thrive when we have relationships with other creatures. And we can, you, we, you, we can have those relationships. You could, you could procreate a series of you know, men and, or a series of women, uh, or actually just could procreate uh, this thing called man, and it procreates and you could have relationships you know, with other created mankind people. Uh, but for whatever reason, God, created a special relationship between man and women. It's a complementary relationship. Uh, and we know this, you know, we know this biologically, right? I mean, the only way that we can procreate uh, is to have a man and a wife that come together to procreate, right? So there's, there's that relationship. Uh, but the fact that, that at creation, there's this picture of a man being complete, but then God takes out of man woman and then they come together and they join together and they become one flesh so it's basically like you have this thing called mankind or man and then god splits it into two and they're complementary two parts and then they come back together again to form one flesh right that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh so uh, I love this picture of, of two people coming together and creating one flesh. So when I think about my wife, uh, it's not just that she is a, 
a woman out there and we, you know, we procreate and create children that way. It's that there is something that she brings to the marriage that, uh, that I am not complete unless she brings it to the marriage. Right. And, and that, and that I bring something to the marriage and that we're not complete, uh, unless I bring that to the marriage. And I, and you could at a just simple biological sense, say, you know, that I bring chromosomes and she brings chromosomes to help create. But, but as I read this in Genesis, it's not just the genetics of it. It's not just the physics of it, that there is a, that we become one flesh uh, spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically, uh, intellectually, that, that, that I am not complete uh, without her and that she's not complete without me. But the two of us come together and we form a completion. And I love that depiction and I love the, th that. And when I do weddings and things like that, uh, I talk about how you know, man brings something to the marriage, woman brings something to the marriage. But as we come together, as you, you that are getting married come together, you create a new, you, you create something new. And in that new, there's a male part to it. There's a female part to it. Yes, it can procreate, but it also complements each other in so many different ways. And if you look at brain theory, if you look at um, all sorts of things, there is uh, based upon what I see, that man and woman are completely different uh, subspecies of mankind and that they both bring something to the marriage. And as they bring that to the marriage, they complement each other and create one flesh going forward. Uh, I love that picture. Now, we have lots of debates today about what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. And uh, I completely understand those debates. Uh, there are people who have more masculine characteristics if they're female and they're more, and there are guys that have more uh, feminine characteristics even though they're male. Uh, and then there's also a thing called a hermaphrodite, which is basically you might have male and female parts and some of those may be dominant. Uh, most hermaphrodites I think are are sterile, they can't really reproduce. I mean, so I know that there's some small subset of humanity that has genetic differences, but for the vast majority, I mean, 99.9% or 99.99%, you're a healthy male and you're a healthy female. Um, and we have created in our society uh, distinctions beyond that which uh, I find very, very fascinating. Uh, and you know, we are, we are a very complex society. We're complex humans. Uh, we uh, think we, we live in this world. You know, we compare ourselves to other people. And when we do that, you know, we have all sorts of thoughts go in our mind, but at its basic root from Genesis, um, and I think biolog biology holds this out also, there are just basically males and females. And when the male and the female come together, they both bring genetic material and they can create males and females. And that's the way kind of God created it from the beginning. Um, I could spend some time uh, getting philosophical about what we are looking at in the world today. 
Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily, I, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily go in that direction. Um, because I, th I think that it is very clear that we have male and we have female and that at creation, and remember, this is before the fall. This is before Genesis three. This was how God created us that we would be split apart. We'd have males, we'd have females, we'd come together. And that's how humanity was supposed to, you know, propagate. And in a perfect world, that's how humanity propagates. Uh, and that's, if, if humanity doesn't propagate in that direction, if there's other ways that humanity propagates, uh, then, then that's, a, that's a later thing that happens after the fall. But even in, uh, the Garden of Eden before the fall at the perfection of mankind. This whole idea of man and woman coming together is part of the perfect creation. And anything different from that um, is less than perfect. And when we say less than perfect, we call that sin, um, the sinful condition of mankind. So uh, that that's just, that's just the simple facts coming out of Genesis. I, I have no other way to read that other than that. Um, and man, you know, so he caused the man to fall in deep sleep. The Lord took the rib out of man. And this is bone of my phone. I just love these words. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Um, so it is, it is, I don't see any other way to read this except that, uh, that man and women are complementary and they come together. And that's, that creates a new a living organism called the man-wife, you know, by by a biome or whatever, and that's how man is supposed to live. So, um, for me, I I just I believe that uh, Jennifer adds so much to our marriage, and I hope that I add some some stuff to our marriage uh, that that is um, that completes our marriage. Okay, so that's the first part of Genesis. But then um, I want to go to this next thing, which is. And Adam and Eve uh, were, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now that's fascinating. Why would you say that they're naked and they felt no shame? If you go and look at pictures of Adam and Eve, right? Uh, Renaissance painters, uh, you know, classical painters or whatever. Uh, you always have these pictures of Adam and Eve and they're both naked. They might have a fig leaf. They might not have a fig leaf. Um, and, uh, and that is how they lived in the garden of Eden. And from this point on, we go to Genesis three, and then we see the fall of man, sin enter into the world. Um, and all the troubles and trials and tribulations that we have from here on out kind of start at Genesis three, but I just want to dwell a little bit here in Genesis two. Uh, just for a little bit of time, because it's a picture of what I believe heaven may look like. I don't know. Um, heaven is definitely going to be a wonderful place, but heaven is a place without sin. Uh, and so the only place that we've known that is without sin is right here at the end of Genesis 2. And basically, what does it look like? Well, first of all, you have man in the garden, man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they're they're not clothed, so if they're not clothed, they're not must there must not be super heat, and there must not be super cold, right? Somehow they are living in this place where there's temperate temperature all the way you know all the year around. 
Uh, maybe it's 72 degrees in the heat of the day and it's 68 degrees at night or something like that. I don't know. But um, I, and I think there are some tropical paradises throughout the, throughout the world where you actually do get a very, very temperate climate where you could actually be uh, protected from that climate and not die uh, from overexposure or underexposure uh, and live uh, in those situations. I, I think Hawaii might be those, the Polynesian islands might be those. Uh, I know that, um, that today in Arizona, uh, certainly this time of year, it's not too cold at night. And uh, if you're in the shade of a tree, it's not really too warm. Uh, but maybe, maybe on a really, really nice Arizona day, you might get one or two of these things. Um, but they don't need to have clothing uh, because it's just so beautiful. Um, God placed them in a garden. There's plenty of food in the garden. Uh, they, have, they have fruits and vegetables or whatever they need to nourish them or theirs. So, and all they have to do is just go to that tree or that whatever and eat it and they're fine. Uh, they, they, they don't have any shame. Um, and for me, uh, this is such a beautiful depiction of, of what the perfect life will be. I, I think for me, when I'm out in a morning walk, and particularly when I go out into Cienega Creek Preserve, which is not too far from here, and I just see God's beautiful creation, and I sit there and I listen to the, the wind through the trees and I hear the birds chirping and I can smell because Sienega Creek has a spring that runs through it all year round. So you can smell the water coming out of that spring. Uh, when, I, when I smell the water coming out of the spring or hear the birds chirping or, or feel the breeze on my face, um, it's healing. It truly is healing. And if you uh, have ever gone out and experienced nature, there's healing in nature. Uh, I remember a couple years ago, we had a guy delivering some stuff at the site uh, and we got talking and he was sick, I think with cancer. And he decided, well, if I'm gonna die of cancer, I'm gonna go back to my hometown, which was on the ocean down in Mexico. And he said he just every morning walked uh, along the ocean beach in his bare feet. Uh, and he said after about three months, uh, actually the cancer went away. Um, I know that's kind of a crazy story, but there is something healing about being in nature. And I believe this. I don't believe it's an accident that God placed us in the garden where there was food available, God's presence is available, God's beauty is available, uh, and everything we would ever possibly want to need is available uh, in that garden. And Adam lived for, what, 900 years or something like that. So even if, if man is supposed to die, uh, certainly 900 years, if you're in a garden, no stress, good food, um, you know, enjoying life, all of that stuff, if we don't overstress ourselves, if we live in the garden, we feel God's healing power in nature, all that, I wonder if we could could live 900 years. I don't know. That the we haven't we haven't figured out yet the science of aging <laughs> um and i think at some point doctors will fella figure out the science of aging i know that stress ages us horribly i know that there's really really bad foods that are high in oxidants 
uh, age us prematurely and you have to eat antioxidant foods to kind of fight that. Um, but here in the garden, we are, uh, it, is, it is a life that, um, that, is, that is enjoyable, that's healing, that's beautiful, that fills our soul, fills our body and our strength. Um, man was placed in the garden. I, if you've ever wondered why it is that guys like to go hunting, uh, it's not necessarily because they want to kill an animal. If you ever wanted to know why guys go fishing, it's not necessarily because they want to, you know, guys and girls, or, you know, they both go hunting. Part of the experience is just being out in nature, right? Experiencing God's creation. That's why we like to hike. That's why we like to go camping. Uh, it's like, and we used to know this, we, we would have little gardens. You know, if you go to England, you have all these little pocket gardens everywhere where you can go in and see the plants and the, and the flowers and the trees and the bees and just sit there and smell the fragrance of the beauty of God's creation around you. We used to know this. We used to spend time in the garden. We used to uh, have lots of gardens. One of the things that bothers me about Vail, well, we, we have the beauty of, of the Vail around us. We don't need gardens. Maybe we don't need any gardens but um, because we have the beauty of everything else around us. But um, there are, there is, we used to know this. I'll tell you another thing we used to know. When, uh, when we started building architecture, uh, a long, long time ago in the Greek and uh, the Roman, you know, heyday of architecture, you would never build a building and take away from God's creation, the beauty of God's creation, unless what you were building was even more beautiful than the creation that you had taken away. And that's why you go into Rome and you see some of the architecture and some of it is absolutely beautiful. Of course, it's beautiful. Because you would never build something, you would never take away God's creation and build something unless it was equally as beautiful. We don't know this today either. We build stuff that is just utilitarian, uh, but it's not beautiful. It, and it doesn't even come close to comparing to the beauty that God can create out in nature, in a garden, a, a, a grape leaf, you know, whatever it is. Uh, there's just something beautiful about God's creation and my prayer for you is that you spend time in God's creation with God, enjoying his creation, knowing that he created it all for you. Everything that he created was for you. Um, while we're in the creation, uh, God puts in a couple trees, right? The tree of life. Uh, I, I believe that if you eat of this tree of life, maybe it has the magic formula uh, for us to live a very, very long time. Maybe the tree of life has... Um, uh, probably the tree of life is metaphorical, all right? It's an, it's an allegory to being in close proximity with God and living in the garden before sin. But it could also be an actual tree that you eat. Uh, I think uh, Augustine thought it was an actual tree that you eat. And, and you know, as you eat this tree, uh, it rejuvenates your life, whatever, you know, whatever um, is causing us to die. Leaky, cysosome, leaky lysosomes, uh, oxidants, uh, whatever it is that causes us to slowly die. Maybe this tree was something that actually, if you ate the fruit from that tree, it would cause you to live for a long time, which is why uh, so many times in the Middle Ages, everybody was looking for the, the tree of life or the waters of life or the well of life or some magic elixir 
that if you ate this magic elixir or drank it or ate the fruit from this tree, that you would live forever, right? I mean, that's what people were looking for. That was, that was the holy grail for so many years was to try to find that tree. Well, here at, uh, in the Garden of Eden, there is this tree. And if you eat from it, uh, you live, you have life. And then there's this other tree. And it's not the tree of death. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, at some level is, um, I think, associated with free will. That uh, when God placed us in the garden, we have the will to say, no, God doesn't want us to eat from that tree, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, I think, uh, for me, it's the age of innocence, okay? If you ever look at a kid uh, that's holding onto mommy's hand and daddy's hand and they're walking through the park uh, and the only thing that that child knows is that everything is okay because I'm holding onto mom's hand and I'm holding onto dad's hand and they're going to feed me, they're going to clothe for me, they're going to provide for me. Everything I would ever possibly want to need in this life is here available to me. And all of that was available to Adam and Eve in the garden. They had oxygen, they had water, they had food. They didn't really need shelter because it was a temperate climate. I mean, everything they would ever possibly want to need was there and available for them, and they didn't need to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as they ate from the tree, they took that, uh, that knowledge, and they ate, Adam ate, and Eve ate, uh, and now they start into... Uh, now they start into a different existence. And this, this idea of just simply enjoying the presence of God uh, in the existence of the garden uh, was taken away from them. Uh, or actually, they took it away from themselves. And when I go out into the wilderness and I sit on a mountain or sit by a tree and, I, and I'm in the presence of God, I want to believe that that God loves me as much as he did Adam and Eve, that his presence is there as much as it was for Adam and Eve, that the beauty of creation is there as much as it was from the Adam and Eve, the healing presence of God is there as much as Adam and Eve. And I, I can kind of think of myself, maybe I'm, if for this little moment of time, you know, all the stresses of the world are gone away and all the all the pains of the world are gone away, but for this moment in time, when I'm in the presence of God, I'm in my little Garden of Eden. Uh, that's that's my happy place. That's the place where I heal. And uh, it's I know it's kind of crazy and corny and stupid, uh, but for me, uh, that's where I believe uh, I believe I f I feel the presence of God most is when I am out in His creation. And, and just believing that he is with me, uh, loving me as much as he loved Adam and Eve. And when I am in those moments, uh, in those moments of time, I really do really feel uh, like I'm loved by God, that I'm his beloved child, that he loves me more than uh, you know anything else. Now, I know he loves all of you too, but that's where I really feel God's presence and his love. And uh, I find healing and uh, I find strength for the journey for the day. Uh, and even a little bit of wisdom for the journey of the day. So um, my, we're going to end uh, Genesis 2. We're going to go into the fall tomorrow. Uh, but my, my prayer for you uh, coming out of Genesis 2 is that you understand that there's a God who created you, that there's a God who loves you, and he placed you in this world. And there are places in this world that are, 
maybe not the Garden of Eden, but close to the Garden of Eden where his presence is. Of course, his presence is everywhere. Uh, and that there's healing and there's life. And this little bit of thing called Garden of Eden is a foretaste of heaven to come. And that's what we all look forward to. So let's close in prayer. Dear God, thanks for this day. Uh, thanks for your creation. Uh, thanks for relationship, uh, male and female, as you created us. Uh, thank you for uh, life. Be with us today. Be with our world. In Jesus' name.